0: On the show, they bring together the best and brightest minds to share with you how to have a more confident financial picture. They empower listeners with simple common sense and financial wisdom. And now here are your hosts from LPF Advisors. So
1: I want to welcome everybody to the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors. I'm your host here always Chris Fleming. And today I have the pleasure of welcoming Brad Galbraith to the show. His Florida and Indiana-based law practice empowers families by successful planning for today and protecting their tomorrows. They do this by utilizing creative and cutting-edge advice that we'll dive into later on the podcast today. So, Brad, thanks for being here and welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Looking forward to it. Yeah, we're going to have some fun. So, I'm sure you have a pretty interesting business history. I'd like you to take me through that and what led you to opening up your own practice.
2: Sure. Yeah, I, I actually started my career as a CPA with Deloitte and. Are you
1: recovering CPA?
2: I'm, I'm recovering CPA. I'm still a CPA. You know, it's okay. a CPA, always a CPA. But, right. Uh, so yeah, I keep my continuing education up to date. Okay. Uh, but I don't practice as a CPA. It's really yep. useful background. Went back to law school, graduated. Thought I wanted to be a litigator, and then realized that I wanted to use my my accounting, tax, and financial skills in a different way. And so I started in estate planning probably about 25 years ago. Wow. Okay. Um, Yeah. So I've really focused my practice uh, exclusively on estate planning for a long, long time now. I started my own firm for a while, for about a decade, I'd say. I joined a large firm Mm -hmm. and then decided I really enjoyed having my own practice and went back out on my own several years ago, uh, maybe four years ago. Uh, We've got a good team. We've got about 15 people in total. Maybe half of those are attorneys, half are support staff. And we really focus on uh, estate gift and, uh, and a little
1: bit of income tax planning as well. Okay. So what was attractive to you about going out on your own? What specifically, like what was the biggest motivator? I'm curious. Honestly, just having the ability to make my own decisions. Mm. Uh,
2: when I wanted to do something, I didn't have to, to take it to a committee and wait six months for a decision. Right. Right. and it's Probably the same reason that, that, that you guys are uh, independent financial advisors as well. You know, having that ability to call the shots for your own team uh, is really attractive.
1: Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, you won't. Uh, I'm in total agreement there. Uh, So is there something, if you could go back and tell your younger self, give them some advice, what do you think that would be? Is there something you know now that you wish you knew when you started out?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that I did early on that I I really wish I had done even sooner is I started an updating program for my estate planning class. Mm. And uh, while that's been around for a long time, I, I hadn't always pushed it as hard as I should. Um, and that, that was in part because it was something new. But the idea is that once a client becomes my client, uh, they have the opportunity to participate in an annual updating program where I take the responsibility of being proactive rather mm. than the client. And, and you know from, from what you do, certainly, probably so often you have to prompt your clients to get back to reviewing their estate plan. Mm -hmm. And not all financial advisors are like that. And not all financial advisors look at overall planning. A lot of financial advisors are just looking at investments, as you know. And if if they are, the clients don't get prompted to to update their state plans as often as they should, Hmm. which means when something happens, they're not up to date, they're not ready. And so with my updating program, it's really intended for us to be looking out for changes in the tax laws, changes in asset protection, we then ask our clients about changes in their personal lives, changes with their assets, transitions that they're going through, whether it's from one state to another, or employment to retirement, selling the business, whatever that might be. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm really proud that we have a really good, robust updating program. But I, I think if I could tell my, my younger self something that would have been valuable,
1: it would have been to, to start that even sooner. Mm. We use a dental analogy in our practice. We tell the people, you know, we're gonna practically when you go to the dentist, they always want to schedule your next appointment. Exactly. So we're gonna we're gonna do that. It's just not gonna hurt as much. <laughs> and and hopefully we're not it's not gonna be painful like it is at the dentist often, either when they do the work or when they give you the bill. So I like is
2: that, I may borrow that from you.
1: So. Go ahead. You can do that. So is there something that you like best about your business right now that you you know that is really exciting to you about what you have going on?
2: Yeah, certainly the part of what I do that I enjoy the most is sitting with clients, hearing about their situation and giving them good advice. Mm. You know, the practice of the law isn't necessarily just that. You know, there's a lot of administrative things that go along with that. We're drafting the documents, you know, in the estate the state planning, there's wills and trusts and powers yeah. of attorney. And I'm to the point of my career where I don't really have to draft those anymore. I get to give the advice. I get to design how those are going to work. I hand that off to other people on my team who are responsible for for drafting everything uh, and getting those back into my inbox to review. So so the the part of my practice that I really enjoy the most is getting to know my clients well and giving them good advice. That's that's really the okay. Fun.
1: I think the way I think about it is is kind of everybody, every situation is a puzzle. And the the pieces are a little bit different and they look differently and it's the putting together that puzzle and completing the puzzle for the client is the kind of stimulating thing or the thing that you get enjoyment out of. The other stuff you have to do because it's a requirement of the business, but um, that's more of a mental challenge. Okay. So do you think there's a a big misconception that people have about what you do or maybe what do you think those might be?
2: I don't hear those that often, but occasionally I have people admit to me. They, they may think this more, more than they like to admit, but you know they think of estate planning as just death planning. And so it's something that you do when you're not in good health or something that you do shortly before your death. And I don't like to treat it that way. You know, it's, there's a lot of things that can be done that are very beneficial during lifetime, it can be lifetime planning. It doesn't have to be a depressing thing. It can be really an empowering thing. Also. Absolutely. Be talking about your, your ultimate legacy, not just handing what you have to your kids and grandkids, but doing it in a way, doing it in a way uh, that really empowers them motivates them. That's the exciting part of it. Rather than thinking of it a, as death planning, it's really opportunity planning and legacy planning.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and everybody's scared of the unknown, right? And so I, I guess I find that when you help them have a more certain future and those unknowns are more known then the, the weight that's lifted in many cases while they're still alive off their shoulders is, I mean, you can physically see it. Yeah, you, know, you really yeah. can
2: and, and actually, that's that's a really
1: interesting point.
2: During the pandemic, one of the issues that we had was we had a lot of people coming in, kind of based on fear. And I, I'm not a guy who drives people based upon fear. You know, from a sales standpoint, right. that's what salespeople will say. You know, you got to you motivate by scaring people. And I've I've never been that guy. And yet, uh, during COVID, we had a lot of people coming to us who were motivated by fear. Um, and it, it made so much more sense to have done planning in advance so that at least that aspect of, of your life, you don't have to approach it from from a, a standpoint of fear. You've already got a plan in place just mm-hmm. in case it's not going to happen. But just in case, you know, we've got something together and, and, you know, that that's a lot more fun to do planning way in advance when when we're not fearful. Um, When we can do it, really thinking more about the opportunity than than a soon-to-come
1: unknown. (laughs) Yeah. So what do you think are the most overlooked areas or blind spots that people are not aware of when it comes to the clients that you work with? You know, usually they come in and say, I want this. Right, sure. and they think that they just need to have that taken care of, and then they've got everything. So, what what do you often see as blind spots that people aren't seeing?
2: Yeah, you're right. So often, people think they need an estate plan, and they don't just need an estate plan; they need a well designed estate plan. So often, probably ninety percent of my two new clients are people who have already done good estate plan or done thorough estate planning, and yet it's gotten out of date. Mm. And they just don't realize that the plan that made sense when their children were, you know, in their teens, uh, they they just procrastinated. They haven't gotten around to it. Now the kids are in their 30s. Things are different. And that boilerplate plan that they put into place years ago that says distribute 25 percent at age 25, 50 percent of the remaining balance at 30 and the remaining balance at 35, um, that, that there are better things that can be done than that. So. I talk a lot to my clients about protective planning, mm-hmm. uh, protective trusts. That's really my term. That's not, not really, uh, there, there's no exact result of protective trust planning, but bottom line is you can do planning in Florida as well as in many other states now where your children ultimately are in complete control, if you like that. And yet they are still protected in, in the event of a divorce, protected from creditors, Grandma and grandpa can make sure that when child passes away, that whatever left of that inheritance goes to their grandchildren rather than to that no good, you know, son-in-law. Maybe part of it goes to, to son-in-law, but they, they make sure that the assets, that they have bloodline protection assets remain in the family. And so a lot of times people just haven't thought that through. I, I often tell people who come in thinking they know exactly what they want, that how can they know? which options they like, unless they know what the, what the options are. And okay. a good example that I give to people that, that most of the time that people say, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a really interesting thought. The example would be, what if one spouse passes away and the survivor remarries? We've all heard of those horror stories where the, the surviving spouse remarries, maybe is taken advantage of, maybe not. Maybe they just don't do good planning. Mm-hmm. They then pass away and everything goes to their new spouse. And the children of that first marriage, the the long-time marriage, the the 50-year marriage, the children of that marriage, who they really intended most everything to go to, they're cut out. Mm -hmm. And we see that happen over and over. Well, what about putting in a provision into into husband and wife's estate plan, saying that when one of them passes away, that the survivor should get a prenup uh, with that new spouse to make sure what was owned by husband and wife still goes back to husband and wife's children rather than to a new spouse. And can we do that? Yeah, we can. But most people don't come in asking for that unless I ask them about that, unless I present that to them as an option, they're just not gonna know.
1: Yeah. Well, and they don't wanna think about that. They, well, the possibilities true. of those things, the what ifs, right? They're hoping everything goes exactly as they want their safe land to go. Yeah, and as so, a an
2: planning attorney, you're right. I think about those contingencies that they don't necessarily wanna think about.
1: Right. Yeah, and that's why you're good at what you do. So let's shift gears a little bit. Sure. Take me through what domicile planning is and why that may have ad- been be advantageous for someone to consider Florida. I think what's the statistic? We have 900 people a day moving here, or something like that. Right. So uh, I'm curious, you know, to get your insight on that.
2: Yeah, depending on who you you talk to, 900 or a thousand people a day moving to the state of Florida. That's just yeah. that's just amazing. And I believe it based upon what I see in my practice. I, one of the books that I wrote is a book called the Florida Domicile Handbook. Hmm. Uh, we're we're currently working on our fifth edition, so it's it's been around for a while. It sold really tens of thousands of copies through the years. I don't know, maybe a hundred thousand copies at this point, but that only means a hundred a hundred days worth of new people. So, uh, uh, so so Florida domicile planning is really about severing the domicile from your northern state making sure that if you change your domicile from for example new york to florida that if new york ever chooses to audit you that you come out just fine Mm. Uh, there are certain states that are very aggressive those are typically the higher tax states they're also typically the estate tax states so for example uh in the midwest we've got minnesota uh, and illinois both of them have fairly substantial. Well, Minnesota has very substantial income taxes. Mm. Illinois has somewhat substantial income taxes, but they have moved higher recently, and they're talking about making them even higher. But both of those states also have an estate tax. Mm. Uh, Out east, common examples are Massachusetts, and Maryland, New York, Connecticut. These states with significant income taxes, also many of those states have uh, estate taxes or inheritance taxes. And so those Northern states are often aggressive when people try to change their domicile from one state to another. Typically it comes mm-hmm. up in an income tax audit. When you have been paying state income taxes, especially if you continue to have a home in that Northern state. And you know, so many of my clients, so many of your clients uh, in Naples and in Sarasota a lot of those people are snowbirds. They, they come back and forth. They continue to have a home in their northern state, and they know that that exposes them potentially to more risk of audit. And so what domicile planning is about is really anticipating what the state's questions may be and really planning in advance so that you have the right answers to those questions.
1: Okay. And for people who might not know why is why is it advantageous for people in those northern states to consider Florida as a state to change their domicile to. Yeah,
2: that's let's a, not
1: let's a, not go into the assumption that that someone might know that.
2: You're right, and it's so easy for me to jump ahead on that because uh, I talk about that all the time, but you're right. Why would someone move from change their domicile from a high-tax northern state to Florida? The obvious answer is taxes, but more specifically in Florida we have no state income tax. We have no state individual income tax. So if you're coming from a a 10% Northern state to Florida, you've got a 10% savings right there, uh, potentially on on income taxes. Uh, But additionally, Florida has no estate tax, no gift tax, no inheritance tax. And then for those people who are domiciled in Florida, who own a primary residence, they can also claim the homestead exemption under Mm -hmm. Florida law, which can have major Uh, long-term benefits. Uh, A little bit more specifically, if you own a home and it is your primary residence and you are domiciled in Florida, it's really not going to be your primary residence unless you are domiciled in Florida. But if it is your primary residence, uh, you can file for the homestead exemption. In every county in Florida, uh, the deadline is March 1st. So as long as you are domiciled, this is a good timing for this presentation, for this question. As long as you're domiciled in Florida before the end of the year, as long as you do some of the important things specifically in Florida before the end of the year, you have until March 1st of next year to file for the homestead exemption. It will then relate back and you'll have the homestead exemption for the entire year. That first year, the main benefit is just simply approximately a $50,000 exemption from assessed value, mm. which really is going to save most people $700, $800, which is nice. Uh, that's a that's a benefit. But the bigger benefit is, is more long-term. And that is that once you are domiciled in Florida and you have filed for that homestead exemption, that first year is your base year for the assessed value. Um, from that point forward, when homesteaded in Florida, your assessed value cannot be increased by more than 3%. It's actually the consumer price index or 3%, uh, whichever is lower. And so uh, just assuming that that 3% is the lower, that means that in a, in a time period like we have been seeing in, in 2021, when we know that, that home prices have been going up. Yeah. I mean, whether that's permanent or not, who knows, but we know that there's been a substantial increase in, in home values this year. In future years, even if home values go up by 20% in a year, if you're homesteaded, you're locked in at just a 3% increase. And so, as you can imagine, over 10 years or 20 years, you'll find that people who are homesteaded are often paying half the property taxes of, of their next door neighbor. Mm-hmm. I've I've seen situations where they're paying, you know, 10%, believe it or not, of what their neighbors are paying because they're in an area where the values have gone up so substantially over the years that it just, it makes for massive savings. So and they were domicile, yeah, so domicile makes sense from an income tax perspective and a state tax perspective and a property
1: tax perspective. Okay, thank you for taking us through that. Um, all right, let's switch gears. I wanna ask you, do you have a first memory of money? So you personally, your first memory of money could have been a, I don't know, first job or an allowance or some experience that you went through. Yeah. As, as a financial guy, I can
2: think back to a number of good lessons that I was taught through the years by my parents. Mm. My, my, my dad was a, a pastor and professor at a theological seminary. My mom was a school teacher. So one of the things that I learned at an early age was that that money is not something that you just run around spending freely. <laughs> and so, yeah, I had an allowance for doing chores, but I, I remember. Kind of my my first job was really when I was 12 or 13. Uh, it wasn't a, an official job. Just a next door neighbor said, hey, you're not doing much this summer. Do you want to paint my house? Yeah. And so I worked hard all that summer and, and I was paid a, a good hourly wage. And at the end of the summer, I thought, you know, um, that wasn't too bad. This hard work thing can kind of pay off. And so one of my first overall good memories or major memories in, in my uh, past was just really learning that the hard work and saving is just a great feeling um, and is something certainly to be encouraged in my own children, too.
1: Yeah, those are things you can pass on, certainly. Yeah. Do you have any experiences, now this is in business, um, working with clients that you think made you really, really aware of the positive or the negative impact of wealth? Yeah. So can you think of I mean, without sharing details, obviously, can you think of any examples of that?
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I can think of just off the top of my head, many examples of both, but I'll I'll limit it to one of each. Um, Certainly on on the plus side, I remember a particular client going back many years, probably 20 years ago, who was charitably inclined. Both of his children had done reasonably well. Um, And he was charitably inclined. And one of the things that he wanted to do was to start a private foundation. Mm -hmm. Um, And the idea for him was not for his children, but to really inspire his grandchildren. And by that point, even his great-grandchildren to be involved in philanthropy, to understand the value of dollar at an early age. And so what he did with his family foundation immediately was uh, every year they would have a family meeting. And every member of the family would be required to bring a short presentation about a charity that they would like to, to distribute money to. And I remember the story of uh, maybe a, a five-year-old a great-grandchild who actually prepared a PowerPoint presentation. It was only a few slides long. Right. Hopefully. No words in the in the PowerPoint presentation. The child couldn't even read yet. But there were pictures of Big Bird and Cookie Monster. And he was explaining to his great grandfather why he wanted to support Sesame Street and why why it would really make a big difference to Big Bird to have some more dollars. And so it was just really neat to hear that he was inspiring the next, not just the next generation, but two generations down from that to really start thinking about philanthropy. So that, Mm -hmm. that was neat. on, on the bad side, certainly, maybe I should have started with the bad side. So I could, could end this part of the discussion with a a high point, but I work with clients oftentimes who have a substantial amount of wealth and not all of them. It's not like I can look at them and say, oh, you're doing the wrong things. You know, there are children and grandchildren sometimes who will be very responsible. And we'll take the opportunity of wealth as as an opportunity, whether that's an opportunity for them to then spend their careers doing something uh, meaningful for the world, being a teacher, being uh, a not-for-profit worker, or, but unfortunately, sometimes there are children who take that as an opportunity really to do nothing, Mm -hmm. um, to do nothing that that mom and dad would have been proud of. And we see the other things that come along with that sometimes, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, gambling. And so I've certainly seen that side of things as well. So oftentimes, one of the things that I will talk to my clients about when they are interested in in maybe making sure that they're not encouraging people to do nothing, I'll talk to them about incentive trust planning, whether that is a, a provision to say, hey, let's match my grandchildren's net income or gross income uh, that they earn from doing other things and if they are in a in a career that is especially meaningful to the world but isn't especially lucrative you know maybe double their income instead of just matching but but give them two or three times that amount to really incentivize them to to do some of those things so so there's a lot of, when you, when you put your mind to it, there's a lot of things that can be done to provide some of those incentives. And some of my clients have, have done that with great success.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's the uh, creative side of what we do with the, with the puzzle. Now you, your practice has an area or a specialization in special needs planning. So I, I I'm curious um, why you made that an offering of your firm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So there's not all that many attorneys who are all that knowledgeable in special needs planning. One of the reasons that I really uh, dove into that area of practice and and learned a lot was simply because my oldest child had a stroke before he was born. Mm. And to this day, he's, he's severely disabled. He's Mm. mentally, he's at about a one year old level and he's uh, 24 years old. And so, you know, when something like that happens in your own family, and you're an attorney, you tend to really focus in on, on that kind of planning and helping people with, with similar needs. And so where I practice in Naples, most of the time, the special needs planning that I'm doing is for grandchildren. I certainly work with people themselves who have special needs children, but even more often, it's really grandparents who say, you know, I've, I've heard a little bit about the fact that if I give my wealth to my grandchild, that I may disqualify him or her from any any governmental benefits. Right, yep. It may be really important to that, to that grandchild. Um, work programs or special educational programs, and I want to make sure I don't do that. So a lot of times what I do, uh, again, is I work with the grandparents to make sure that what they do is helpful to their grandchild and doesn't harm their grandchild.
1: All right, that's great. So your personal experience was essentially what led – you into learning more and, and having that emphasis in your practice. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's great. So what? that's a good segue. What, what do you think, what would you say, Brad, is probably your biggest life accomplishment so far? Huh, that is interesting. Could be personally wow. or professionally or both. or. Yeah, I'm kind of in that
2: phase of my life right now. And with, with my children now going off to college, I'm thinking a lot about my children. And so I have a total of five kids, ranging from 24 all the way down to seven.
1: Oh and wow! Was, yeah, it's it's
2: it's really a lot of fun. I've got two of them in college right now, uh, ones at University of Texas, ones at University of Florida, and I went to Indiana University. And so all three of our football teams are ranked in the top 20 in the Yeah, yeah. And so that's that's been fun to have those experiences with. With my children, uh, I've got another one going off to college next year, uh, so we're in the middle of the the college decision making for her. And so, I suppose the biggest accomplishment uh, that I look at is really um, is really how I've raised my children, uh, how uh, my my children's mother uh, has raised them, and how how it just seems like we fell into making the right decisions, and somehow they're doing just fantastically well.
1: Right. Yeah. You raise them all the same and you and throw it, them out there and hopefully they something sticks. Yeah,
2: exactly. And kind of like what I was saying earlier about my clients who some of them have done the right thing for their kids. Some have done the wrong things. And it's it's not immediately obvious to you what what is right and wrong. You know, when you're a parent, you kind of play it by ear, you do your best um, and you hope it works out. And so far, I'm really proud to say it's worked
1: out with my kids. So that's a, yeah. a big accomplishment. Yeah. If you can be intentional, that's, that's a lot of it right there. So outside of your practice, tell me something that you are really passionate about personally.
2: Yeah. So one of the things that I do that has been important to me, uh, really my entire life is physical fitness, really competition. And so when I was in middle school, uh, high school and college, I competed and really through high school, I competed a, at a very high level. I, I, I trained first in cycling at the Olympic Training Center and, and raced all over the country. Then I, I got back into that again later in life. But a year ago, I had a bad fall and broke nine bones, a lot of surgery, a lot of rehab. So that was a, a big setback. And so I decided rather than cycling where I sprint at the end, where, where it's dangerous for a 54-year-old, that I would do duathlon which is running, cycling, running. It's a triathlon, but it's a okay. swim, bike run. It's yeah. run, bike, run. And I found that I'm really pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. So I recently qualified uh, as an All-American and I'll be racing in the World Championships next year for Team USA. So that's that's exciting. It's a big pastime and it keeps me busy on a daily basis doing something that's really good for me and very healthy.
1: Yeah. Where are the world championships,
2: Brad? Well, that's a good question. They were scheduled to be in Australia next August. Oh, (laughs) Unfortunately, they were, because of Australia closing everything down, they have said they won't be in Australia, and they haven't yet announced where they will be. This year, in 2021, they're actually still having the world championships in Spain. So where it will be next year, I don't know, but it, it was supposed to be Australia, and it will not be Australia, apparently.
1: Yeah. They got things locked down over there.
2: Yeah, and I guess they announced that they're going to stay locked down for until at least next July or something, is what I heard. And so yeah. that's just not going to work for a world championships in August. So, no, it's uh, not. So, it's up in the air somewhere in the world.
1: All right. Well, good luck with that. Well, uh, so, what do you think? What's the most exciting part of your business right now? The biggest opportunity business wise right now?
2: Yeah, for me right now, we talk a lot about estate tax planning you know, my, my particular client base in Naples and really throughout Florida, I work with people all over the state of Florida. You know, it's amazing now with, with zoom, Mm -hmm. WebEx, et cetera, we're able to do so much uh, remotely, but I I tend to work with some pretty high net worth people who need to think that if the estate and gift tax is going to change, maybe they should do something before it changes. So there's just a lot of people right now working on, very large tax planning opportunities. I started talking to my clients about that a year ago, really more than a year ago, August of 2020, really sending them regular articles and newsletters about, hey, the estate tax may be changing. And so you may want to think about planning ahead for that. And so just in the fourth quarter of last year, my clients transferred a billion dollars of assets to their family. And this year, I'm sure the numbers will be even much greater than the fourth quarter of last year. For me personally, in my, in my practice right now, we're just doing a huge amount of advanced estate tax planning.
1: Okay. And on the flip side of that, what do you think is your biggest challenge or biggest obstacle?
2: Yeah, the biggest obstacle is finding employees. We're, we're so busy and yet to hire new people is just not easy. You don't want to bring in new people who are inexperienced because you need them to be up and running quickly as soon as they get in, because I don't have the time to train them at the moment. So it just makes it really very difficult to to find experienced attorneys, experienced paralegals, experienced uh, staff members. I've been really very fortunate that my team is just fantastic. I wish we had a few more people that would allow us to do more of that work, but it's just really tough to find those people.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that is tough. And you have to kind of expand what you would consider as being a potential arrangement, you know, working remotely, but then there's a whole bunch of pluses and the minuses of that. So we're going through some of that too, with our practice and bringing on advisors. Um, I feel your pain there. So do you think that commoditization has in any way affected your business or what you do? You know, that's a great question, and it comes up a
2: lot. I, I know it's something that has had an impact on your business as well, but I would guess your response would probably be, to that question would be the same as mine. The, the best defense against com- commoditization is to make sure that what you're providing really isn't a commodity. The perception is that an estate plan may be a commodity, but all those things that we've been talking about today are the things that make what I do no longer a commodity. You know, it's it one plan while to the end observer who isn't knowledgeable, one stack of paper might look a lot like another stack of paper. But the fact is, it's very different when you do planning that's really based upon getting to know the client, designing a plan specifically for them, rather than filling out a, a fill in the blanks kind of document. It just really sets you apart. You're doing really something very different. You know, In my world, they talk a lot about commoditization, and there's different approaches to to how businesses can kind of structure themselves. And there are certainly those estate planning attorneys who really try and compete with commoditization based upon lowering their fees. Mm. They are then incentivized to spend less and less time with the client. And that's just not what I do. I spend a, a huge amount of time with my clients. And my clients are just the people who who appreciate that.
1: Yeah. Well, and I have to think of it as there's data, there's information, there's knowledge, but then there's the wisdom component. Um, That's really tough to come by on the Internet or, you know, the wisdom part, um, which is how do we take all this information and actually construct something that is specific to a person and also is personal to them and something that they can latch on to and agree with and believe in. Absolutely. Makes sense. Now, Brad, if people wanted to learn more about your practice or they wanted to contact you, what do you think would be the best way for them to do that?
2: Yeah. So from an estate planning perspective, a great way to, to get that conversation started is to go to our website. Okay. Uh, Which is? W.galbraith.law. And Galbraith is G-A-L-B-R-A-I-T-H.law. So not .com, Dot right. law That confuses people sometimes. Oh, yeah. Um, From a domicile standpoint, I am legal advisor to a company called changemydomicile.com. Oh, okay. And clients can go there and learn more about change of domicile. And importantly, very importantly, they can download a state-specific memorandum and checklist based upon their northern state. Because when they make a change from a northern state to Florida, let's face it, Florida is not going to audit them. It's their Northern state. And so what they really need to know is what do they need to do to sever that relationship with their Northern state. And so uh, we've produced these memoranda for for almost all of the high tax states. Uh, Not all states are covered, but most states that have significant income taxes or estate taxes are covered there. And that's a great way to get started. If there are still more questions, certainly reach out to me and, and I can answer those questions
1: as well. Okay. Yeah, maybe that's. I always have to think of a title for every podcast. So maybe for this one, I could call it How to Break Up with Your Former State. That is true. That is true. <laughs> yes. That would be catchy. I think we'd get some people to click on that.
2: Yeah, how, how to divorce your, your to, former state. Former state right, no.
1: right, right. Yeah. I no. like it. I like no. it. No. You could use that too, Brad.
2: There you go. I appreciate <laughs> that.
1: It's yeah. I'm always I'm here to help. All right. right. Well, I I want to thank you for taking the time to be here with me today. You've been a really good guest and I've learned a lot from your insights. Uh, Folks, I want to thank you all for tuning in to the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors, where we're raising the retirement confidence of everyday people to another level, one show at a time. We'll see you all next time. Take care. Bye.
0: You've been listening to the Confident Retirement Podcast with Chris and Mark from LPF Advisors. For more information on them and retiring confidently, please visit lpfadvisors.com. If your ears are pleased and your mind is now at ease, do share the programme with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.